Good morning, and welcome to Textual Criticism 101. I counted up the last time that I seriously looked at anything to do with textual criticism, and it was 35 years ago. So this has been a, a, a return to the past uh, to look at it, and why is textual criticism necessary? Well, first, it might help to know what textual criticism is, and so it's necessary because we do not have any of the original autographs of the New Testament. I'm focusing more on the New Testament than the Old because that's even more complicated. But since we don't have any of the original autographs, what we have is copies upon copies upon copies ranging anywhere from the middle of the second century uh, within 300 years of the actual writing of the New Testament, which is quite impressive. No other ancient manuscripts have that kind of attestation or copies near to the actual writing. But uh, because of textual variation and variance within the co uh, copies, that we have, we have this issue or this need for the science of textual criticism. And I call it a science because it's hypothetical in ways and it is not infallible. So what I want to end up with uh, by the end of this lecture or Sunday school class is to end up with you having confidence in the Bible that you hold in your hand. For example, uh, does anyone here have a King James Bible? Okay. Uh, who has a New English Standard Bible? Okay, the reason I want you to do that, uh, New English or English Standard Version, is I want, uh, Lois, would you read, or, or Bob, one of you? Oh, you don't have it with you? Anybody got one with them? You have ESV. I'm looking for somebody to read out of the King James Version. Huh? Uh, read it anyway. Uh, Romans 8, 1. The new, uh, just the King James Version. This is an example of a textual variant. Nobody has a yeah, King James? how much of Romans 1? Yeah. How much of Romans 1? Romans 8, verse 1. You got it, Jonathan? Terry? Now, somebody read the ESV, Romans 8 1. Anyone? Maybe we need to pray. Oh, there we go. So, who walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh, is not in the English Standard Version, but it is in the King James Version. Is it in the New King James Version, Susan? Romans 8, 1. According to the flesh, not yeah. according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is a textual variant. Why does one translation have that additional line and the other one doesn't. It's because of textual criticism. 
And of course, the classic places are the ones Paul mentioned in the Gospel of John, the end of chapter 7, seven running through chapter 8, which is the story of the woman taken in adultery, and then the end of Mark's Gospel from about uh, verse 9 to the end of the chapter are also textual variants. Uh, portions of Scripture that not all manuscripts include. And so what I want to get to today is basically give you a general overview of textual criticism. First, let's talk about how the Bible was written. When you look at the Old Testament, it's basically Hebrew. And Hebrew is written how? From left to right or right to left? Right to left, okay? You read it from right to left. There are no vowels in the Hebrew Bible, okay? So you have to supply the vowels. That would be a reason why there might be differences in translations over certain words because you're basically having to add the vowels in. Now, if you look at a New Testament manuscript, it's written in Greek, all capitals, with no punctuation and no spacing, okay? It's just all capitals. It's written uh, from left to right, or you read it from left to right, but it's all capitals, no verse numbers, no punctuation, just straight letters, okay? And so you could see how people sitting down and copying these manuscripts, scribes uh, were the professionals who did this, why there could possibly be differences in copies. Let's say I'm a monk, and I'm writing, copying in uh, Matthew. And uh, all of a sudden, nature calls, and i got to go to the bathroom. So I get up, I go to the bathroom, I come back, and maybe I start over in a place. I didn't mark my place, thought I would remember it, started over. So let me put it to you this way. This, this might help you understand the value of textual criticism. There are, just in the New Testament alone, 5,400 manuscripts. Now, that's not complete manuscripts. That is either portions, some of it's just like a little tear portion off. Some of them are complete manuscripts. But that is a lot of manuscripts. Now, how many variants are there in these 5,400 manuscripts? It's going to blow you away. Between 100,000 and 400,000. Now, how in the world can we trust that we actually have a, 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 a viable, uh, reliable textual integrity with all of these variations? A variation is where they don't say the same thing or they don't include the same uh, uh, vowels or otherwise. And so how can we have confidence that we have um, a reliable Bible in our hands because this is why textual criticism is necessary to preserve textual integrity because we as reformed evangelical Christians uh, believe that the Bible is the final authority for all faith and practice. We believe that it is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God but yet we do not have any of the original autographs which are Paul sitting down writing the letter to the Romans. We don't have the original copy. There are no original copies. Where are they? 
Only God knows, and he hadn't told us. Probably some were burned, others were destroyed, and some just uh, melted away into the dust. And so when you start looking at numbers like 100,000 to 400,000 variations, along comes a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman. Anybody here ever heard of Bart Ehrman? You have. He's a textual critic that teaches at Duke University. And he's now the hot going and blowing, young, uh, not young, he's about my age, uh, writer for New Testament attempting to destroy any validity of Scripture based on this information. But you have to know that guys like him uh, see what they want to see when they look at the Bible. And he is an agnostic, which means what? He doesn't know. Not only does he not know whether there's a God or not, he doesn't know much about the Bible. The more you read him, the more you see. He'll come out with information like this, but then he won't explain that by the time you get through looking at 5,400 documents with this many variants, they count everything as a variant. Every little thing is a variant. When it gets down to it, they're really only about 20,000. Really only about 20,000. I, I, let me finish, Bob, before we go. But that's Bart Ehrman. He's really popular. I was in Barnes & Noble Friday. Just went to the religious section. His books are all over the place. He's extremely popular. But uh, he's someone who argues not to make any value judgments. And then you read the last chapter in his book and he makes a ton of value judgments on how stupid we are uh, for believing the Bible. But let's... Let me just jump right into this because there's some material here that I think is helpful. So, when we look at Romans, something like Romans 8.1 in the NIV or the ESV in the King James Version, there's a big difference there. And the comment concerns an issue that surfaces throughout the Bible, differences in Bible versions that may affect the meaning. While some Bibles include footnotes to indicate uh, where such differences exist, these notes are not always helpful to readers unless you understand how the Bible was preserved and transmitted from its original authors to the current day. Um, the question then comes, what should we think when we find disagreement between English versions? Um, which translations are right? Which translations change the biblical text? How can readers make good decisions about these discrepancies between the various versions? The questions are important for every student of the Bible. But one of the ways we can help answer that question is to understand what textual criticism is and how it is practiced and why it's necessary. It is necessary to preserve the integrity of the text. Then uh, as we continue on in our class, we're going to look at the goal of textual criticism and some of the basic principles used in practicing it. Now, entire books are written on this subject. What I'm trying to do is fly over like a helicopter and give you a little bit of a view. If you're more interested after the class and you really want to get into this and you're a science kind of person, I'll happily refer you to three, four, five books that you could read. And if you are that kind of person, you're a little strange. No, you're not, you're not really. <laughs> so what textual criticism is and what textual criticism is not. 
Textual criticism explains the differences people notice between the English versions of our Bible. Uh, the variations in uh, translations are often not textual critical in nature. Instead, they reflect translation technique and decisions made by translations committees understanding the differences between text criti critical issues and translation issues is an important first step in the study of textual criticism because it helps explain why translations differ and determines when textual criticism will not be helpful. So translation technique and unclear meaning. You see where we are in the outline? Point A. Before a single word of the biblical text is translated, the translation committee, whether it's uh, for the English Standard Version, the, the NIV, uh, the Living Translation, whichever one, uh, the translation committee, and that's how they do it, uh, or group commissioning the translations, decides what their translation philosophy will be. Do they want to produce a literal translation as much word for word as you can get, though it might be wooden, or do they want to do a paraphrase or something in between? Do they want to produce uh, many uh, variables factor into translation philosophy, but in general, translators must decide whether they want to preserve the form of the source language as closely as possible or the meaning of the source language as the translator understands it. It is impossible to reproduce languages exactly because the grammar and syntax of each language is different. Syntax means the arrangement of words and phrases to create well-formed sentences in language. And so, what are, what are we out to do? Um, it is impossible, as I said, to reproduce languages exactly because of the grammar and syntax of each language. Uh, the rules of the source language, Greek and Hebrew, in the case of the Bible, differ from the rules of English the target language, and since each language has its own rules, translation requires adapting the rules of the source language to fit into the rules of the target language. That sounds complicated, but that's how translation happens. By the way, all translations, most all of them that are serious translations, I would call, that actually deal with the text, um, there are differences in all of them. There are strengths in all of them and weaknesses in all of them. We use the English Standard Version here because I believe it is the best, latest translation done on the best text with the greatest under, uh, I love the translation philosophy of the New English Standard Version. That doesn't mean you have to throw your other Bibles away. They're also helpful. Now, I didn't know if you knew that translation committees do this. By the way, translation committees who work on the New Testament, let's say, know, know more Greek than everybody in this room combined, okay? I mean, their whole life has been spent, what? Translating, teaching, developing Greek. So you can have confidence in the translation you hold in your hand because it's not done by one person. That's usually a paraphrase like the message, but rather it is the work of a committee and what they get to when they get to a difficult passage to understand and translate, 
in the end, they vote on it, okay? And the uh, majority wins. But that's how they do biblical translations. So understand that. But I need to get on my horse here and get a little bit past this. What I wanted to see is um, translation committees decide whether they want to represent in English every word of Greek or Hebrew or whether they want to represent in English the meaning of the Greek or Hebrew text. The first option results in what is usually called a word-for-word -word translation or a literal translation, though both are impossible in an absolute sense. This approach to translation is called formal equivalence, and translations that aim to be formally equivalent try to translate the forms in the source language into equivalent forms in the target language as much as possible. A literal translation can give the reader a good sense of the structure of the underlying Hebrew or Greek, but it can also create awkward sentence flow and even lead to a failure to grasp the author's intended meaning. English Bible versions that strive for a word-for-word -word translation include the NASB, New American Standard Bible, the King James Version and the New King James Version, and the English Standard Version. They're all within the circle. Um, you have on the back of your outline a, a diagram at the top that talks about uh, formal equivalence, but then there's a second approach that translators use uh, to make a real attempt to represent the Greek or Hebrew ac accurately, but they're more willing to sort of smooth out the text so that it, it's more readable, it has idiomatic English. This approach is called dynamic equivalence, okay? Dynamic equivalence. Think of the NIV when you think of that. The NIV, uh, the New Living Translation, the New Century Version, uh, other English versions. Um, some of these on this diagram, I don't even know what they are. Does anybody know what the LEB is? I don't know. I looked it up. Can't find it. So I'll have to write the author and say, who is this? Uh, so that's dynamic equivalence, and that's important to understand that. Uh, they try to get the same effect on the readers today that the original produced on its readers, and so that includes the NIV, the New Living Translation, uh, the New Century Version, and the... Uh, something English version. Practitioners of a third approach may add explanatory words or phrases that are not in the original text, and they are more likely to rework word order and other aspects of structure. This option is typically, typically called paraphrase, often described as putting things into your own words. Now, who wrote the message? Eugene Peterson, right? The Message Bible, it's, it's okay to read, but it's one person. One person versus a committee. And then there's the Living Bible. Anybody know who wrote the Living uh, Translation, Living Bible? I hope you did because I can't remember. It. Nobody knows. Not that important. A pastor once told me, read the new, uh, Living Bible before you go to bed so you can forget everything you read before you wake up. <laughs> Stephen? Okay, thank you. I may have more for you, so keep that Google handy. 
And then you have Amplified Bible, which is Joyce Meyer's favorite Bible, which is not really a translation as much as it is uh, a thesaurus of different words where it runs on and on. Now, I don't, I don't want to mock that. If you use that for help, fine, but it, just remember it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. So the various English versions of the Bible all fall along a spectrum between highly literal and highly paraphrastic. Uh, and so the translation committees make their translations decisions based on encounters of a passage where grammar, grammar or syntax of the source language is ambiguous and they still must decide the best uh, way to render the text into English. But that is not textual criticism. Textual criticism is not translation. Both of these issues described above, above, translation technique and uncertain meaning, are important factors in explaining why translations vary. But they are translation issues, not textual issues. They are concerned only with uh, transferring a particular passage from the source language into the target language. And so textual criticism, let me give you a definition of textual criticism because I've told you what it's not. Now let me tell you what textual criticism is. The word criticism today often connotes what? Negativity, right? Negative, dissing people, whatever. But it derives from an older usage of the word criticism means to analyze or investigate. So textual criticism involves the analyzing the manuscript evidence in order to determine the oldest form of the text. Such analysis also reveals historical evidence about the transmission of the text, scribal habits, theological biases, and more. Biblical scholars engage in this discipline as do scholars in the broader field of literature. For example, writings of most authors such as Plato or Shakespeare may be published as critical edition in which scholars have sifted through manuscripts to identify the errors that may have crept into the text and to determine the author's original intention. Um, by the way, if you look at the Iliad, you look at uh, Tacitus and other his history writers of ancient time, the nearest copies, they don't have any original manuscript of any of that either, uh, or some of these others that I've mentioned, and so the nearest copies they have are over a thousand years later. Nobody ever questions that, do they? But when it comes to the Bible, remember, there is a personal devil, and he wants to discourage you and to get you uh, upset about the validity or the integrity of Scripture. Because the original bi biblical manuscripts called autographs, that's what the original documents are, autograph. Why is it called autograph? What does that mean? Auto means what? Self. Graph means what? Writing. So we have no original autographs, but that's what the originals would have been called. They have not survived. Therefore, we depend on handwritten um, copies, none of which agree with each other 100%. Uh, in case I don't get there, and I may not, 
uh, what kind of agreement do we end up with after the textual critic finishes? Probably 97% of the New Testament from the analysis of textual criticism, and that is radically high. Okay, radically high. What are the other 3%? The other 3% do not affect at all any of the doctrines, any of the teachings, any of the formal. It's whether letters were left off, whether uh, numbers were wrong, and often numbers were copied wrong, and they can't resolve it. But so 97%, but let me tell you how they do it. But I just wanted to give you that in case I didn't get there. So, where are we? Let's look at the goal of textual criticism. The main goal of textual critics is to establish the original reading of the biblical text. And the terminology of original text is now seen as problematic because textual critics have recognized the complexity of the writing and publication process in ancient times. For example, when was the printing press by Gutenberg invented? Anybody know? 15th century. You're right. Anybody saying 1400s? It's good. By the way, it was a prime time. Why? Because it ushered in the Renaissance, which also ushered in what? The Reformation. <laughs> uh, the, the Gutenberg Press. So understand that how people had their Bibles, Paul might go to Thessalonica and then leave and write them a letter which was taken and read before the church and then after a few readings they would copy it and pass the copies around. But we didn't have what we have today. It's hard to imagine living in that kind of culture, but that was the kind of culture there was and that's how it happened. And so the goal of establishing the earliest form of the text from which all extant copies descent is feasible for the New Testament since we have an abundance of manuscripts copied shortly after the autographs themselves were written. The primary complication for the New Testament critic is deciding between the many copies and variant readings of the New Testament. The plethora of New Testament manuscripts is a great benefit, however, when trying to determine the original reading of the New Testament, for it is easier to sift through and evaluate the various extant readings than to amend text with no evidence. A further goal of New Testament textual criticism that is pursued by current textual scholars is the history of the transmission of the text a study that has valuable implications for students of history, exegesis, and theology. And so the goal of textual criticism is to arrive at some valid final form of the text that we can have confidence in. Now, let's look at basic principles of textual criticism. Textual criticism is not an exact science. But there is a basic process that controls the evaluations of variants. You understand what a variant is. It's a variation in, in two copies of a text. And so how do textual critics do their work? What actually do they do with the copies of the manuscript? Uh, to evaluate the variants, it's necessary to consider external evidence, which you'll often see in New Testament introductions to books, 
external evidence as well as internal evidence. Determining which variant offers the best reading is an art, by the way, as well as a science. So it isn't just science. There is an art to it. First, let's look at external evidence. External evidence involves the quality, quantity, and textual affiliation of the manuscripts that witness to the variant readings. This type of evidence is not concerned with the context of a passage, which reading seems to make the most sense, or even how the variant developed. It focuses on evidence external to the actual reading and what kinds of manuscripts is a given variant found. There are three general principles for evaluating external evidence. Three. Number one, prefer the reading found in the older manuscripts. Why? Why would you do that? That's not rhetorical. You can answer. Closer in time. It's like if, if we are sitting in a room in a circle and I, I say something and ask the person to pass it on to the next person, who most likely is going to get it? The person closest to me. And so the manuscripts closest to the time therefore are advantageous to us. And so, generally, the older manuscripts are more reliable than later manuscripts because they're closer in time to the original composition and have theoretically fewer opportunities for errors to develop. However, even in our oldest manuscripts and copies, uh, there are differences, and so the principle has limitations. An early manuscripts is just, in, just as likely in some ways to include errors or deliberate changes. At the same time, the late manuscript may be only one or two generations of careful copying from ancient one and could preserve an early reading. Number two, prefer the reading that has multiple attestation. If the reading occurs only in an isolated manuscript, there's li less likelihood that such a singular reading preserves the original form of the text. Normally, you would expect the best and oldest reading to be more than one or two witnesses. At the same time, the prolific copying of the New Testament in the Middle Ages resulted in many hundreds of copies of later Byzantine type of text. This is frequently occurs, uh, thus it frequently occurs that the textual ways uh, the reading of a few older manuscripts against the reading of many later ones. In such cases, the older witnesses tend to be preferred over the many later witnesses. And finally, number three, an external evidence. Prefer the reading found in a variety of manuscripts. A reading that is carried by several textual traditions for example, a reading that is carried both by the Alexandrian and Byzantine witnesses is more likely to be the earliest form of the text than one that occurs in a single textual tradition uh, that is only in either Alexandrian or Byzantine or a family of manuscripts. So understand, you're looking at 5,400 <laughs> things here. And it is a... Uh, scientific process. They try to be as objective as possible, yet they use these principles to do so. Now let's talk a little bit about internal evidence. Internal evidence is concerned with what happened within the text to cause the occurrence 
of the variant readings. Scribes were prone to making, uh, the making of certain kinds of mistakes in their manuscripts, and authors exhibit particular styles of writing, preferences in vocabulary, and systems of belief. One of the reasons why the John passage from the end of chapter 7 through the first part of chapter 8, Paul mentioned this last week, the reason why that is often regarded as not well, it doesn't fit the context no more. It's internal evidence. It doesn't fit the context, and the language and style and structure is not, or does not, seem to match up with everything else John has written, okay? So that's a way of determining whether or not that goes. Whether or not you should preach it is another question. By the way, when I did preach through John, I did preach it, but I qualified it because I think it's probably a real story just not one that John had in his gospel. Um, and so, when textual criti critics assess variant readings based on knowledge of scribal habits, they are assessing the transcriptional probability of a particular reading. When they consider variant readings based on larger context of a particular author's style and theology, they are assessing the intrinsic possibility of a given reading. One of the reasons why I never believe Paul wrote Hebrews, I still don't. I would love it if he did, because he's my favorite. But <laughs> I don't believe he did, because it looks nothing like anything else Paul wrote, okay, stylistically. And people say, well, the original context, the original audience determines the style. Uh, I think it would be somebody more like Apollos or somebody like that, or perhaps even Barnabas or others. Uh, but that's how people look at internal evidence. And so let's look at the uh, transcript transcriptional probability. Easy for me to say. Although the scribes of the biblical manuscripts were, for, for the most part, well-trained and cautious, they were humans. And humans sometimes make mistakes. The tax task of the textual critic is to determine when copyists made mistakes or intentional changes. Each of these changes could be discussed in detail, but I'm going to give you a simple review that is on the back of your outline. Number one, haplography. Writing something once instead of twice. If you're sitting down copying something, you've probably done this. Writing a research paper, and uh, now most people don't handwrite. They do the computer keyboard, and you got spell check and all that. But the monks didn't have that. The scribes didn't have that. They're hand copying, and so they would write something once instead of twice, or something twice instead of once. Parablepsis comes from Greek. Uh, blepo means to see or like eye vision, and para means to see alongside of, so it is eye skipping that overlooks or eliminates or repeats a text. I have done that myself in reading and writing. Dittography, what do you think that is? Copying, uh, writing something twice instead of once. Conflation. 
uh, combining multiple readings, glosses, incorporating marginal notes into the text. Now what would happen there is someone handling a copy would write a note to the side maybe about this particular text and the copier would write that into the text. Those are the variants you're seeing, okay? Of the uh, 100 to uh, 400,000, which in reality gets down to about 20 uh, real ones. Uh, metathesis, switching the order of letters or words, mistaking letters, confusing one letter for a similar looking letter that's real easy to do in Hebrew, real easy to do in Greek. Anybody here know what the Greek letter for R is? Rho. Okay. Uh, it looks like a P. It looks exactly like a P. So you can see, but this they're doing capitalized. But in some of the capitalized letters, it's even more confusing, or could be, as you're looking at the letters. Okay. Uh, homophony, confusing words that sound alike, spelling and grammar, updating or improving the text, harmonization, bringing similar passages into conformity, theological changes, protecting the text from misunderstanding. The transcriptional probability is all about scribal habits. For each variation unit, the question of the textual critic is, what change is a scribe or copyist most likely to have made? So you're looking at two copies, and you see a change. And so you run this through the grid to see uh, what you come up with. But remember, we get to 97%, which is higher, again, than any other translated piece of literature in history. Okay, now let's look at intrinsic probability. Every author has a particular style in the grammar and vocabulary choices. And every biblical book does reflect the original author's theology because scribes made intentional changes at times to smooth grammar or clarify difficult uh, text. Not every reading represents what the original authors wrote. Textual critics try to determine which variants best reflect a given author's style and theology based on the larger context of a chapter. Which of these two words is Paul most likely to have used in this context, for example? However, matters such as style and theology can be highly subjective. So wise textual critics are not dogmatic in their assessments of intrinsic probability. So here are the basic principles quickly for the uh, internal uh, reading. Prefer the shorter reading, Lectio Brevior. Because the earliest Old Testament scribes considered their text sacred, they were usually reluctant to change any part of it intentionally. The earliest New Testament scribes considered the New Testament documents of high importance, but not at the level of authority of their Bible, which was the Old Testament. In either case, if copyists did not intentionally smooth out a stylistic difficulty or make a passage easier to understand, they were more likely to add to the sacred text than to take away from it. Thus, a shorter reading is generally considered to be more original than a longer one. But again, we're dealing with science, which can't be always dogmatic. 
Prefer the more difficult reading is often what they would do. Scribes sometimes made changes intentionally to make a difficult text easier to understand. We've seen that already. And then prefer the reading that best fits the author that we are looking at. Uh, look at his vocabulary, his syntax, anything out of whack or out of place. Generally, the textual critic should consider the variant that best represents the author's broader style and intent. So textual criticism is both a science and an art. While basic principles guide the process, some conclusions involve a degree of subjectivity. Learning these principles is a starting point for scientific inquiry, but developing competence in the art of textual criticism takes time and practice. What are the limitations of textual criticism? We got what, three minutes? Textual criticism serves an important role in the study of the Bible. People who value the Bible as God's word should be interested in the earliest wording of the text, and textual criticism helps us arrive there and answer that question. But it cannot answer everything we want to know. For example, it may determine that Mark 16, 9 through 20 and the story of the adulterous woman in John 8 are not original to the works of Mark and John, but it cannot say whether these texts are inspired cannot tell us who wrote the Pentateuch or the book of Hebrews. It cannot detail the process of how the Bible came together. That's can, uh, canon uh, uh, determining the canon. The church didn't choose the canon of Scripture, but rather recognized the canon of Scripture in certain ways. But that's another whole thing, canonical criticism. Textual criticism cannot speak to the historicity of every story or the reasoning for conflicting accounts. Many of these questions are considered by scholars who work in other areas of biblical criticism, such as canonical criticism, form criticism, historical criticism, redaction criticism, and source criticism. You want to be a New Testament scholar? You got to know about all that. And... Uh, I did study this, but let me tell you what seminary was like. It wasn't like they gave us the answer to every single question we wanted. It was like walking into a library, and over here they would take you in the section called Old Testament. And they would point out, here are all the books you need to read if you want to understand the Old Testament. And I'm going to give you a brief overview. I mean, you only got three years, okay? And then you go to the next section, New Testament studies. The next section, history of the church. Next se session, systematic theology. Next section, ethics. Next section, pastoral care uh, and pastoral studies. Uh, next session, missions. And so it's like you get exposed to all of this stuff as much as they can do in a limited amount of time. But that's why you need to understand stuff like textual criticism to understand that somebody who knows far more Greek than I do and I studied four years of it, okay? Four years. My wife used to find the flashcards. My wife used to do the flashcards with me to learn vocabulary and all of that. She probably knows more Greek than I do now. But that's why you need to trust your Bible, okay? That's why I need to trust that you have uh, a reliable text in front of you. And thank God for the science of textual criticism. For apologetics purposes alone, it is fantastic.
Does anyone have a question? Yes, Jan. It seems to me that the King James Version of um, 1 John 5, 7, and 8 is more accurate than the, than the wording that they gave it in later versions. Well, you know why people think it's more accurate. Why? Because it seems to give us the Trinity. Right, exactly. But that may not be what the text said. That's where you have to trust that textual criticism has done the process through it and arrived at that position. And I think in that case, the textual critics are right. I do, yeah. Yeah, Bob. Is it a question? The 100,000 to 400,000 400, variances, must con a significant number of those must be punctuation differences well, or, it's, or it's variations. Well, it's like because if they find a variant, they not only count the variant, but they count all the other cases that are the same. So it's not really just finding place, one place where something's off. It's the way they count. So, yeah. Yeah. It looked like Jonathan. Paul wasn't very fond of the, of the period, though. With no. Hundred word sentences. And Paul stuff would like say, that. and finally, and go on for 40 more verses. Yes. He's yeah. He's, he's like a lot of preachers I know, <laughs> including me. Yes, sir. Um, you said that among all the variants, um, even in that 3%, there was essentially no difference in real meaning or theology or whatever. I, I imagine there's got to be some. No, there's none. Well, I mean, can, can you give us, I, my question was, can you give us an example of I can point the you largest, to a book that can. I, I can point you to a okay. book that will. But I, I did not get, but basically the author that I, three authors that I looked at all came to the same conclusion that the 3% does not change the meaning, theology, or doctrine of the Bible in any way. Uh, if you want to uh, do some research on that and see what those variations are of the 3%, uh, I'm just going by what I read, so I didn't do it myself. Uh, and I wouldn't, if, if there is something that changes the meaning or theology, I'd like to see it. Yeah, Mark. When I was uh, teaching on the attributes of God, when we were looking at the inseparable operations of the Trinity, one of the changes in the ESV that really startled me was Jude 5, which says that Jesus led a people out of Egypt. So, I mean, that just shows how the Trinity is inseparable. Whereas the NIV and the ASV would say the Lord. But, I mean, that's just an example of, I liked it because it helped. <laughs> well, the ones we like, we affirm, and the <laughs> ones we don't, we don't. But I didn't give you everything you would ever want to know about textual criticism this morning. I tried to give you an overview. It'd be easy to ask me questions I don't know the answer to. Because I'll also have to preach in a minute. But I did spend several hours, more hours on this than I uh, usually do on any study. But what I tried to give you is just sort of open up the window. If you want to read good textual criticism material, you got F.F. Bruce. Bruce Metzger is another author. Um, uh, Paul, do you know some? There's a guy named uh, Tony something. 
Yeah, there's a book also in the gospel series by Greg Gilbert called The Bible. <laughs> uh, you know those little books that Nine Marks puts out? Uh, they're little square books. And uh, there's one called The Bible that I thought was very good, but it's very popular. It doesn't go into nearly this kind of technical language. Well, thank you for your listening. Uh, I was afraid nobody here was interested in this, but some of you are more interested than I thought. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together looking at this important subject, why textual criticism is necessary so we understand what it is. We do thank you for preserving the text. We thank you for giving us ways to come up with uh, as high a percentage as we have of agreement between the copies that we have after textual criticism and uh, pray that people would leave here uh, confident that what they hold in their hand when they read the Bible is God's Word. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.